So in our ordinary time this year, we are focusing on spiritual formation over a lifetime. And in these weeks, the spiritual formation of Peter. And in the last number of weeks, we'll be doing the spiritual formation of David. Well, we normally end our times of sermon with some quiet. And this morning, we're going to do both. I want to invite you to have a little quiet with me as we begin this morning. And I want you to reminisce a bit. I'll tell you how in a moment. And if you can, to celebrate. It's, it's sometimes just right and appropriate to celebrate uh, growth. And so I want you to just begin to wonder with me as we get into thinking about Peter and, and how he became able to kind of solely, focusedly desire the will of God. Maybe you can wonder this morning, how have you been changing over the years as you've followed Jesus? Are there ways that your knowledge has grown? Maybe you can identify ways in which your commitment deepened. Can you recognize maybe how your interaction with God has changed? Or maybe this morning you're here with a longing for change, that something in your life would change. And I would just say to you that even that longing is a gift from God and something to celebrate. It may feel to you like an emptiness or a barrenness, and you may be frustrated about it. But even that longing is the work of God in your life. So I want us to notice this morning from our readings how Peter has been transformed from that moment of denial to the Peter we see in his epistles and how his inner life was transformed from that of desiring a self-induced security. Did you catch that? Like a way of securing himself in his dissembling, in his fudging. That's right, so that's like a, that's like a self-reliant kind of security. And how in the years between that and the writing of his epistles, how he has been transformed into the kind of person for whom he has a deep trust in God's will, and in that, he finds safety. Now, I just want to say I've been around long enough to know that what I just said easily falls into something called religious rhetoric. Oh, the will of God, trust, reliance, just so easily religious rhetoric. Or it's real, and you know it in the quality of a person's life. You know it in the manner of their being. You can see it in their eyes. Jesus said the eyes are the window to the deepest whole person. You see it in body language, certainly in tone of voice, certainly in words. So I just want to suggest to you that this is not religious rhetoric, though you may have heard of it for decades. I mean, you can hardly think of anything more Christianese than the will of God. But there's something there. So I just want you to note the contrast in Peter's own thinking and when he says, do not live the rest of your earthly lives for evil human desires. If you look at your text there in 1 Peter 4. So don't live the rest of your life, your earthly lives, for, note those three words, evil human desires. And note how he contrasts them, but rather for the will of God. And I think what Peter's alerting us to here is the vast importance of the human will that one of the great marks of being made in the image of God is that we've been given will that is very different than the rest of creation. 
There are other aspects of creation that have aspects of will attached to them, but not in the same way that we do. And so right at the heart of anyone's formation, first and foremost this morning looking at Peter, is what is going on with our will. It is either aligned kind of intuitively towards human evil desires, or over time as we cooperate with the grace and power of God, as we work on it gently with him, our will can actually get aligned with the will of God. So Peter's saying something like, in their context, now remember these are exiles, they're suffering, sometimes just sort of casual um, social suffering, other times very uh, profound persecution. So we can't know for sure, you know, we're kind of reading between the lines, but that there's some sort of suffering happened to these Christians that Peter is writing to. And so he says to them, I want you to think of your sufferings as a doorway to formation. Think of them as a way of weaning from you that old sinful habit of always expecting to get your way. Like, I shouldn't be suffering this. This is not my will, and I want my way. And so Peter, having lived through that courtyard experience that Dennis just read to us, is very aware of Jesus' sufferings, not only in that moment, in the injustice of it, the unfair questioning, the beating, the mocking, the torment, all the way to you know, cross and death. And this is why he begins in this sort of Christocentric way, alerting us to Jesus' sufferings and saying, this is the paradigm for human suffering. And in the same way that Jesus didn't demand his own way, now catch this, but said, Father, if this is your will, that this cup not pass from me, then okay, let it be your will. So now Peter is seeing Jesus as then the model for how one deals with suffering, and he's simply applying it now to his hearers for their own formation when he says, Dunno, just think of your sufferings, which are sort of nothing compared to Jesus's, as a way, if you want them to be, if you want to take the soil of your life as you presently know it, the good job or a bad job, a happy spouse, a not so happy spouse, good kids, bad kids, you know, doing well financially, doing not, whatever. If you want to take your life as you presently experience and make it the soil of your formation, you can. You're invited to do so. And you can take the suffering bits of that and use them as a way to wean yourself from that sinful habit of always expecting to get your way. And the idea here then is that as you begin to do that, you'll then be able to live out your days free to pursue what God wants instead of, as the message has it, being tyrannized by what you want. I can't remember when I first read that sentence, but I remember a few years ago when I uh, wrote that book on temptation, um, Our Favorite Sins. In the process of writing that book, I noticed that phrase again, and I used that phrase, I think, numerous times in that book. How do we be free from being tyrannized by what we want? Can you just picture that for a moment? Is there some place in your life where you are literally tyrannized by something you want? See, we tend to think of our wants in the category of freedom. And there's a sense of, of course it is. You're free to want what you want. But we don't often think that those wants can slip over into something that actually tyrannizes us. And of course, in our gospel reading this morning, we see that Peter learns this the hard way. As Jesus, knowing what's real of him and of his other followers, says that they will all fall away. Peter, thinking he understands his wants and desires, says, no, no, Lord, are you kidding? Call to mind, just play here with me for a minute. Call to mind somebody you really care about. Got it? Now picture them suffering. You know, maybe bleeding. Like, maybe you can picture a child 
who fell off their bicycle and they're you know, bleeding all over the place or something, right? Just picture a moment like that. Somebody you care about. And then hear somebody say to you, well, you're gonna forsake them. You're gonna walk away and leave them. And you would say the same thing. Are you kidding? I'm not gonna leave my child, or my brother, or my sister. What are you, you know, sort of like, are you crazy, Lord? No way. I'm not gonna abandon you in your moment of suffering. It, it, it was, I think it was sort of inconceivable to Peter. But Jesus, focusing in on what was most real about Peter, something that went deeper than his aspirations, something that was more profound than his present thinking of himself, Jesus sees what's real and says to him, and you know, we're always reading between the lines here, but I believe Jesus equally loved Peter. I believe they were emotionally close. And I think Jesus says kind of brokenheartedly, yeah, yeah I, I know Peter, but I'm just telling you, before this night's over, you're gonna find a column to hide behind. You're not gonna be present to me in my suffering. You're gonna, you're gonna hide from it because you don't presently have the capacity to do what you want to do. You're tyrannized by another set of wants that you're either blind to or have not yet worked out. And of course, you know, me knowing the end of the story like the rest of you, you know, like I've read the end of John's gospel. And so I kind of hear Jesus sort of tongue in cheek here saying, and by the way, don't worry about it. I'll see you on the beach. It'll be all right, right? The, the synoptics have Jesus saying, I'll, but I'll pray for you. So Jesus is not abandoning him. Jesus is just like knowing, you know, you're going to go through this awful night and lots of other awful stuff's going to happen in the next few days. But I, you know, I just think Jesus is like, and you need to hear this this morning. Don't worry about it. I'll see you on the beach. Look at me. Knowledge of your true inner self is a gift. It's not meant to be guilt producing. Jesus will see you on your beach. It's all right. You know, find you a few days down the track and you and he can have a little quiet time and you can just talk about it. You can deal with it. But Peter still is so insistent, says, nope, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. But then the tyranny of his real desire kicks in. So to the first servant girl, he's misleading. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Like he's literally saying, what does your question mean? I don't even understand what your question means. And then the scene has him moving over towards the outer courts or to the gate, or as the artist has it this morning, behind that pillar and being found there and saying, I don't even know the guy. And then bystanders, you know, hearing this and seeing what's going on come around him. And again, this is, we all try our best to read between the lines here, but the best thinkers that I can read and find about this is they picture Peter here now really nervous, like a little kid that's gotten busted or something, you know? You know how little kids sort of freak out and maybe stomp their feet, you know, or wave their hands. No, I swear to God, mom, that kind of moment, you know, that that's maybe the agitated state that Peter is in. And he begins, as Dennis read, to call curses down on himself, making an oath. Like, I swear to God, I'm telling the truth. I don't know him. And then the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. And he went out and he wept bitterly. But as we know, the story doesn't end there, that Peter was formed into the great pillar of the church that we know over a lifetime and learned, as far as I can tell, that the core battle with Peter, as with us, is this, that our consistent thoughts and our most common feelings constantly batter our will. When Peter says to Jesus, I won't deny you, I believe he meant it. But when the heat was on, 
other thoughts and other feelings kicked in and they battered his will into a shape. Like think of like a blacksmith bending a piece of iron. This is what our thoughts and feelings do to our will. And they bent Peter in that moment into a shape that he didn't anticipate was possible for him. And this is why you've heard so much, as I said, in Christian rhetoric about the will, God's will and ours. It's because a surrendered will to God is absolutely core to our growth in Christ. Without that, the rest of our being will not come along. That is to say, if you don't will a certain state of your being, well, then your thoughts and feelings, your body, your social interactions, they're all going to twist you into some shape. And so it's the will that stands in the middle of that and that at least gives us a shot for dealing with our thoughts, our feelings, our embodied desires, the social pressures that come to us in families and friendships and the workplace. And so the idea here is that we're not doing this through gritted teeth, but that we're using our will to turn the other parts of our being to God. And the way Jesus foresaw this is stunningly beautiful. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, everybody who heard him first would have understood what he meant. When you put an immature animal in a yoke with a more mature animal, the immature animal goes through a time where it, it, it finds coming into cadence if it's a horse or if it's an oxen into, you know, rhythm or knowing what to do. There's this moment in which things are a little rough, but then there comes a time and when it's easy and the burden is light. This is what Jesus means when he says, my commands are not burdensome. If you find the commands of God to be burdensome, I would invite you to just gently ask why. They're not meant to be burdensome. So if you find them burdensome, you just begin to wonder why. Maybe it's a habit of thinking. Maybe it's patterns of feelings. Maybe my will isn't actually aligned to that. Maybe it's social interactions that I don't yet know how to deal with. But what Jesus is picturing here is the kind of gentle but um, very predictable change that can come from the inside out when one puts themselves in the yoke with him. And then we do so, of course, always knowing that grace will meet us there, that we're never alone in this, that we always have the action of God working with us when doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. Now, this will help you make sense of something that Jesus taught over and over again, but you think especially of like Matthew 23 where Jesus is pronouncing woes on the religious leaders of his day. So do you remember this sentence? For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll not enter the kingdom of God. Remember that sentence? And you might think, well, what the heck? How can I out-religion the religionists? How can anybody's righteousness surpass that of the Pharisees? They were the ones who were precisely known as the most righteous ones. And I think what Jesus is getting at is that the Pharisees did religion at the level of action. So something like this, not actually paying attention to my will or my thoughts or my feelings, but just sort of through gritted teeth saying, well, I'm just not going to lie anymore, or I'm just not going to drink anymore, or I'm, you know, I'm just not going to, whatever, I'm, just, I'm not going to do that anymore. So then what the Pharisees were guilty of was taking the commands of God, the Torah of God, which was meant to be the shepherding, guiding, holistic way of becoming the people of God. They then stripped out of it all the power. They especially stripped out of it the love and reduced it down to little things that they could do, actions that they could do, which would then mark them as righteous. And then that gave them a certain sense of themselves. 
that was very much like Peter, actually unable to do what the Torah, what the law intended. So they, they cut it down to what they could do and enforce on others and missed the heart of it. They missed what Jesus taught them, that the law boils down to this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, your body, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's precisely what the Pharisees stripped out of it. And Jesus is saying that we're not getting it unless our righteousness surpasses that kind of religiosity. And I think for Jesus, this is what it meant to be a lost soul. I know as a sometimes professor of evangelism that for a decade or more now, Christians have tripped up on the word lost. They, you know, think um, Luke 15 or the other places where the New Testament describes people as lost. And it's, I think now many times seen to be as pejorative. Like you can't tell somebody they're lost. Can't even assume they're lost. That's like mean. Can't do that. And especially when it got attached to lost, meaning you don't know where you're going. Like you're lost. You know you would go to heaven if you die. But lost doesn't mean not knowing where you're going. Lost means not knowing where you are. That's what it means to be lost. See, a map doesn't even help a, a lost person because they don't know where they are. So a map literally does them no good. And Jesus is noting that that's the way the Pharisees were. And in our reading this morning, that's where Peter was. He didn't realize that he was already safe in the kingdom of God. He didn't have to secure himself through dissembling, through fudging, through lying, through even going so far as to call a curse down on himself. But a restored soul is the one that can actually love God and others and has the capacity to do the good that naturally arises from that dual love of God and neighbor. And that's what Peter lacked. He lacked the capacity to do the good he wanted to do. Now, I just want to suggest to you that the path there involves something like this. It involves learning to be at peace with I am me. Now, I, I think I've probably said this at some point over the last seven or eight years, but you likely don't remember. But I mean, if we could just drive out the 57 freeway and get off at Cal Poly, I could literally walk you to the spot in between the baseball field and the uh, clubhouse where the coach stopped me one day and said, Hunter, the scouts just told me you're not going to make it. Now, I'd spent my whole life from about two years old to 19 preparing to, to get drafted and try to be a professional baseball player. I had to come to grips with I am me. I have below average speed. I have a slightly below average arm. I'm one dimensional, not gonna make it. I am me. And I had to come to grips with that and to become at peace with it or else what? I will engage in trying to control me and everybody's thoughts about me and manage manage others' perceptions of me, become angry, bitter, accusing of others. They're stupid. They don't know what they're talking about. No, I am me. Look at me. And I am here. This is my place in life. This is my station. And you're my neighbors. And God is here. And when those things are true, I am no longer lost. I know where I am. I am me. And you are you. And God is with us. And we're not in Montana or New Zealand or Bangladesh. We are here. We are situated. And this is the ground in which we get comfortable with God, where we can set aside wishing for another kind of life. 
another family, a different school, wish I got a different degree, lift, I wish I lived in a different city, which all just leads to regretting and blaming and retaliation, the kinds of things that marks humankind. And this is what explains Jesus standing on a hilltop, looking into the city of Jerusalem. And the Greek text says there that his heart is torn. It's kind of a gross set of language, like the kind of tearing that animals do to each other when they're eating each other. Jesus' heart is torn as he looks over this common condition of humanity. And he sees them like sheep without a shepherd, who picture this, who just heads down, nibble by nibble, had walked away from God and where they were and who they were be, to be. Strayed, they were now lost. They didn't know where they were. Full of fear and anxiety, they were jittery inside and out. But now here, Jesus standing up that day in the synagogue and taking the scroll of Isaiah and reading, but today is the day of the Lord's favor. You don't have to live like this anymore. You don't have to nibble according to your desires so that day in and day out, week in, month in, year out, just nibble by nibble, you find yourself wandering away from God and the place that he put you in and the person he created you to be. You don't look up someday and realize, oh my God, I'm separated from this flock. I'm separated from God. Now I'm scared to death. And in that fear, I now have to manage my life. I don't any longer have a community. I've nibbled my way away from the rest of the sheep. I've nibbled my way away from the, the shepherd. And now I'm left in that mental position of Peter. Uh-oh, I have to control this. Because if I don't, I'm not going to get what I want. And again, this, this makes sense now of Jesus' classic teachings. When he says, come unto me, all you who are carrying heavy loads, he's picturing precisely those kind of sheep who now have to take the world onto their own shoulders and manage their own life. But Jesus says, if you'll come to me, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. We might say, Peter, learn how I was, Pete. He might, what if he would have said on the beach, hey, Pete, did you notice that my blood pressure didn't go up in the courtyard? Did you notice that I could be there peacefully present? So Peter, come follow me, come learn of me. I am meek and lowly of heart. And as you follow me down that road, you'll find rest for your soul. And of course, we enter into this reality by hearing Jesus' call to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We begin to think about our thinking, our emotions, our social self, our bodies. We see where it's taking us nibble by nibble, and we have the spiritual integrity to ask, am I now lost? Or are there aspects of me that are lost? So I think what I want to say this morning is that you can take confidence in Peter going through this process and coming out on the other side that Peter really did learn to live in the yoke. He really did learn to, to know what rest was and how that rest allowed him to take all the dimensions of his person and help them to stop fighting. But beginning to trust God, he learned to abandon himself to Jesus, learned from Jesus how to seek first the kingdom of God, learned to live, John 15, like a branch deriving its life from the vine. He became what we might say in modern language, a soul that now works rather than a broken person. He had a soul that was no longer broken, but that just worked, not perfect, maybe not even particularly religious, just what we would call today functional. He became the kind of person who could do, who could know the good and do it. But many people are stuck thinking, I can't do what is good because if I do so, catch this, if I do so, I won't get what I want. That's where the rubber meets the road. So I can't tell the truth 
Because if I do, I can't manage my reputation. So see, do you see what I'm saying here? If I do the good, I can't get what I want. Well, the answer to that is not a teeth-gritting obedience. The answer is to work on what you want and to make yourself safe. Even if you tell the truth about yourself, it's okay, you're safe. And only confidence in God can cure this of really coming to the place where we don't just like think this, but it's deeply intuitive in us that the Lord is my shepherd and I'm venturing on God and his kingdom. I mean, I can just put my hands over my heart and say to you, I am venturing on God and his kingdom. As much as I know in every area of my life, I'm betting it all on God and his kingdom. I can see nothing else even remotely reasonable on which to bet my life. And what happens is if we don't seek this kind of transformation over a lifetime, then the relentless pressure on our souls from our thoughts and our emotions, our will, our bodies, our social environment, they'll continue to result in almost all manner of waywardness that ends up harming others. But if we learn to seek first formation into Christ-likeness over a lifetime, then we'll discover that in God and his kingdom, that as the writer of Hebrews says, he rewards those who seeks them. Remember that little sentence in Hebrews? God rewards those who seeks them. Well, with what? A soul that works. A soul that manages to live in alignment with God and his kingdom for the sake of others. Or Jesus puts it a little differently in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and then what? All these other things will be added to you. All the other things of life that are normal, they'll be added to you if you just seek first the kingdom of God. Bet in your life on that. Well, I said we would have a little sandwich here of quiet time. So is there something this morning as we have a moment of quiet? Is there some growth that you can notice that maybe you identified as we began? Is there some growth that you'd like to thank God for? Some growth that you'd like to celebrate? The goodness, power, the activity of God in your life? Or maybe this morning you've discovered a longing for change and feel a bit stuck. And you might want to ask the Spirit to go there with you.